Oh, I woke up this morning. The sun was shining. The bird outside my window was once again singing this beautiful, sweet song. And there was a crisp breeze. And for a moment, just for a moment, once again, all seemed, well, normal. And then it hit me that today just might be like the one before as we navigate this new world and strive to maintain our health and the health of our loved ones. The reality can seem overwhelming. And so we find ways to silence any darker thoughts and instead find ways to bring ourselves comfort and even some joy. So my wish for you, our listeners, is that you're not in any pain, but you're in good health. I've been trying to bring you different perspectives each week from the front lines, the elected officials and others who are trying to keep us safe from harm. Governor Cuomo said today that the number of deaths and new hospitalizations have been dropping. So even though it looks like the curve might be flattening somewhat, this pandemic is far from over. And even as we see signs of hope, the realization eventually hits us that our way of life is going to change dramatically for years to come. So I just want to also give a few shout outs to the essential workers, to those people who've been on the front lines, the people that I'm seeing each day or reading about each day that are making a difference, whether it's the person who's bringing food to an elderly neighbor, a friend from Chicago, Pat Shemansky, who's been creating hundreds of face masks and mailing them to me and others and distributing them in her neighborhood and sending them out to hospitals in her area as well. There are signs of love and hope and promise, even in a world that's now facing a war against this virus. So across our country and our world, many of us are isolated and the virus has been impacting communities of color and the older generation and people with pre-existing conditions at much higher rates. Consider what those who already were facing health challenges are now dealing with. Our WBAI correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston spoke with one and here's that story. Listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz Marston. New York is the epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic sweeping the planet. WBAI is collecting the stories of New Yorkers fighting their way through the storm. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. I'm John Oswald. I am a former newspaper editor who is disabled. I live in Manhattan. I am a double amputee who, beyond that challenge, started dialysis last fall. I cannot completely socially distance because I have to leave my home three days a week to go to a midtown Manhattan dialysis center where I'm sitting among 25 other patients. It's been a little crazy because every time we go to the center, they're instituting new protocols for how patients are being treated. Um, one of the things they've done is there are a lot of patients there who are fairly sick and their caregivers come with them. They have barred caregivers from sitting with patients inside the actual dialysis center room. That's a huge change, especially for people who are used to having their home attendants, their children sit with them through the four-hour treatment. In addition to having to go to dialysis, I was also going out during this time several days a week to uh, a NYU rehab facility to learn how to walk. Uh, I, with, I would have my two prosthetic legs, and as this crisis was unfolding, was finally learning how to walk. All those sessions are now 
postponed for at least May. We are going to try uh, a telehealth uh, video session in which they will instruct me through my computer uh, with my physical therapist there on video how to put the legs on, how to safely stand up. I don't know how much walking will do because I'm still a little shaky, but it's essentially put on hold other recovery issues for me. I've been through so much that when this happened, <laughs> I joked, uh, I'm also visually impaired. I'm legally blind. Um, I, I, I joke, I, I, I'm fairly macabre about all these things. I've, I'm blind, I have no kidneys, I have no legs, and now the plague is coming for me. It's like you can't possibly make up a story like this, that this is happening, that, that I am sitting here fighting for my life. I literally have said to myself several times that if one more thing happens, that's it, I'm out. But another thing happened, and I took it, and I'm, um, I'm adjusting, and you know, I don't want to die. I didn't think I could manage another stressor beyond the financial issues that also stress me out. But, um, you know, I'm doing the best I can. But one of the big positive things I've seen is in that I admire is the work of the nurses and, and the social workers and the people who run these things of the dialysis centers. They are working under unbelievable circumstances and we still have to keep showing up we cannot stop our dialysis we have to have it three times a week or we die the work of healthcare professionals is i mean it's really tremendous and i as a lot of us are salute the nurses who essentially keep me alive john oswald lives in manhattan Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. That was our correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston. She's been speaking with New Yorkers from all walks of life who have been dealing with the coronavirus. I now would like to get to my first guest, New York State Senator Julia Salazar. She represents New York's 18th State Senate District, and that includes the Brooklyn neighborhoods of Bushwick, Cypress Hills, Greenpoint, and Williamsburg, as well as parts of Bed-Stuy, Brownsville, and East New York. She's been outspoken on issues about equality and affordability, and on behalf of the rights of tenants, those in the criminal justice pipeline, and immigrants. She currently chairs the Senate's Women's Issues Committee, and she's a member of a number of other Senate committees. I spoke with her earlier this weekend, and here's that interview. Senator Salazar, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI. It's my first time having you on the show, so while I want to get to some specifics about the world around us, I first want our listeners to get to know you a bit more. You were the youngest woman elected in the history of the Senate. How young were you? And tell me a little more about your career. Sure. I was 27 years old when I was elected to the New York State Senate in 2018, uh, making me the youngest woman to be elected to the Senate in the history of the state. I did not have a conventional trajectory to becoming an elected official. I was a full-time community organizer for a nonprofit 
working primarily on police accountability uh, policy and uh, criminal legal reform legislation uh, before and well actually even while I ran for office. Um, I hadn't been a, I had was very interested in, in policy and, and uh, was definitely dedicated to public service, but I hadn't worked as a legislative staffer, for example. I had volunteered on electoral campaigns, but, uh, you know, for, for insurgent candidates and democratic socialists. Um, and so my, I, I didn't um, have like a political science degree. I wasn't an older white man and a lawyer, like many, you know, many of my colleagues, even the majority of the legislature, I would say. Um, and, and so what really led me to run was that I had, um, uh, had experiences with democratic socialist candidates. Um, I had previously supported a democratic socialist Latina tenant organizer named Debbie Medina, who ran um, both in 2014 and in 2016 against my, pre my predecessor. And I was really inspired by her campaign. And when I learned that she wasn't running again, um, I learned from, from people who had also been involved in her campaign who approached me about it. And uh, they said, you know, we really want you to run. And I considered it carefully, although I didn't have a lot of time to think about it because they asked me in early 2018. And uh, I knew that I wanted to do things differently, that if we were going to do this, we needed to run a truly grassroots campaign um, and and reject uh, for-profit real estate money. Um, seeing the, the negative impact that um, the affordable housing crisis and that the outsized influence um, of the real estate money in New York State politics had had, especially on our district in North Brooklyn, um, I, I was really motivated to not only run as a candidate who would challenge those, you know, the status quo in that way, but also seeking to be able to change housing policy, uh, among other things, um, to, make, to make the city more livable for um, my neighbors and, and the communities that I represent. Um, so that's that's how I ended up here. And obviously the pandemic is shifting all of our priorities. As you consider this, what are some of the issues or pieces of legislation that you had hoped to move forward this session that aren't getting traction now and that may have to be moved to the next session? I should clarify that the, while the Senate does plan to continue the 2020 legislative session, thankfully, um, what that will look like is conferencing and voting remotely by video conference. And a lot of things are uncertain, but it's clear that we still have really critical work to do and urgent issues to address, especially because, you know, we're the legislature for the state that's at the epicenter of the pandemic. Um, I, so I'm the chair of the Women's Issues Committee, although uh, originally named the, the Women's Health Committee. And so the, the focus, uh, my legislative focus has been a lot on what, what are typically considered women's health issues. Uh, but what I am really concerned about in general and, and during this crisis is housing security and housing justice because um, for not only for tenants, but for struggling homeowners, people who could be facing foreclosure or can't keep up with uh, mortgage payments, um, you know, so, so many people are losing their income right now. And um, the, the steps that the federal government has taken, as well as even the action that we've taken 
in the state legislature to to um, expand paid leave. It it hasn't been enough to uh, allow people to stay in their homes long term. Right now, there's an eviction moratorium, which is really critical. Um, but there has not yet been a rent suspension or a suspension of mortgage payments. And so that is that's my top priority right now is demanding. Uh, that rent be suspended for at least a few months so that people have time to, you know, uh, readjust. And, and as we know, after, even after the state of emergency ends, a lot of people are still going to be unemployed. They're not suddenly going to be able to pay back rent um, and, and, uh, and mortgage payments. So it's really, it's really urgent, I think, that we provide that, that kind of relief to people right now. And this is a piece of legislation that Senator Gennaris talked about on WBAI's Max and Murphy the other day. So you obviously then support that proposal. Absolutely. Yeah. And I've gotten a ton of emails from uh, constituents more than on, I think, any other issue in in the year and a half I've been a senator um, in support of Senator Gennaris' bill, which I'm a co-sponsor of F8125. And just people sharing their personal stories, uh, everyone from from young residential tenants to small homeowners to commercial business owners who who have had to close. Um, so, it, yeah, I think it's especially important to my district. Uh, but whether we do it by legislation or the governor does it by executive order, whatever it takes uh, for us to to get it done as quickly as possible is, is what I want to see. You mentioned uh, the Women's Issues Committee, and one piece of legislation you had introduced was to establish a women's health education program in correctional facilities to help pregnant inmates that last went to, if I'm correct, the Finance Committee. What's the status of that, and what would this measure do? Yeah, I think it's um, S3126. It's um, a bill that Senator Senator Biagi introduced, but I'm a co-prime sponsor of um, that passed through the health committee, and it would actually do a lot of things because the conditions that women, incarcerated women, but especially pregnant women, deal with in um, in, in prison and, and in jails in New York uh, are are severe conditions. Um, there is a lot that we could that we can do to improve these conditions, and, and not necessarily. Um, carrying that much of a of a cost to the state, especially considering um, that that some of these things, such as providing prenatal vitamins for pregnant women and just making sure that they have an appropriate diet, um, requiring certain testing to be offered that is you know common commonplace, not expensive, um, making sure that if somebody is going into labor while they're incarcerated, that they just have a support, someone, one one person of their choice to support them. All of these things are not uh, the current reality and the current law, and, and, and all of them are addressed by this bill. Um, I, I know that it's in finance now, um, and it's unclear what the rest of this legislative session will look like, of course, but... But um, I, I do think that it's it's interesting that this bill was introduced in February of last year, long before any of us knew, most of us, <laughs> I think, knew what COVID-19 was. Um, but 
it's still highly relevant uh, in, in this moment when we're talking about um, the relationship between mass incarceration and, and public health. So I think it's, it's still timely to be considering legislation like this. You recently voted against the state budget. What led you to that decision? Yeah, um, a number of things provoked me to vote no on the budget. I voted no on all four of the Article 7 bills or the policy bills in the budget, um, including the one that I think most people just think of as the the budget bill, um, which included changes to the bill reforms that we passed in 2019. Um, I supported the reforms in 2019, would have even liked to see um, us eliminate uh, wealth-based detention or cash bail. And so naturally, I was I was really disappointed and, and could not justify supporting the modifications that were made in 2020, which expand the potential net of detention, uh, the, the charges uh, that, that could allow a judge to set cash bail for, for um, someone who's accused of a crime. Um, and I just, I, I believe that not only during and in, you know what will be the wake of a public health crisis, but just in general, um, there there really isn't a public safety justification or a public health justification for uh, detaining a legally innocent or presumed innocent person based on whether or not they can pay before they they even see a judge or, or rather before they they get a trial um, and and so that was definitely the the biggest issue for me with the budget but there were there were a number of alarming alarming things in the budget including simply that there were absolutely no new revenue sources added to the budget which we had really been advocating for for some some kind of uh, reasonable new taxes on the ultra wealthy um, taxes on uh, people who have secondary residences in New York who currently don't pay income taxes. Um, there were a number of proposals that had popular support among the electorate and in, um, in our conference that, uh, you know, that just didn't survive negotiations. And uh, I think that's, that's really a shame, especially in a moment when we're, we have this multi-billion dollar deficit in the, in the state um, and, and, the money isn't gonna going to you know grow on trees or or uh, you know magically appear. We really have to to uh, have the courage to implement economic justice and and a more equitable tax system in in our state. And so, the, because the budget failed to do those things, I I couldn't really justify voting for it. And I'm glad you talked about bail reform. Uh, in previous shows on WBAI, I've had on Brooklyn District Attorney Eric Gonzalez and then recently uh, pl- the police commissioner. And obviously there's a lot of debate over the release of people who've been housed at Rikers uh, at this time. Where do you stand on that? Do you, um, because, I mean, you consider the extent of this virus and, and particularly among people who are housed in close quarters. What do you think should happen? We really need to be releasing people and decarcerating as much as is reasonably possible. And I believe that this can be done um, in many ways without without compromising public safety at all. And in fact, um, 
in, in support of improving public health and public safety. The Board of Correction, um, not to be you know mistaken for the Department of Corrections, but the Board of Correction, which is sort of the, the oversight agency for jails in, in New York City, um, their recommendations that they issued weeks ago, pretty early in, in the crisis, like in, in March, um, included releasing people who are over the age of 50 years old. Um, now, we actually, I think, now know that the virus doesn't discriminate as clearly based on age as, as people once thought, but regardless, um, they, they were fully in support of, um, of releasing the most vulnerable people who are incarcerated, um, especially because so many people uh, who are, in fact, the majority of people who are in jails in New York City right now have not, um, have, have not had a trial yet. And so it's, it's, you know, there isn't really a logical case to make that all of these people need to be incarcerated, uh, especially when they're being held in close quarters and we are, you know, facing this pandemic that demands social distancing and, and for people to be separated from one another. And then, you know, the, the you know, most sanitary conditions possible, uh, that, that isn't the reality in our jails and prisons. So, um, I, I think that the Board of Corrections recommendations, I, I fully support. Um, I also think that people should not be held in immigration detention at all right now. There, you know, there's no reason for it. We're, we're talking about a global pandemic here and for, for us to be prioritizing um, federal immigration enforcement or complicit in it in New York um, is is especially offensive right now, I think. Um, so, so I definitely think that more needs to be done. And the governor and the mayor have, have already released some people, but it's really a, a small number in comparison to, to what needs to be done for the sake of public health. We're in a new world, and as we move ahead, particularly as we're working remotely and not moving about as much, how will the state legislature have to act differently and go about its business? What needs to be done? Well, for one, right now, the legislature is not as active as I would like to see it. Um, that's in part because of the natural legislative calendar that it, just a couple of weeks ago, we passed the budget and uh, we Passover just ended and there's ordinarily sort of a break built into the legislative calendar. But uh, it's we're, we've also been less active because the governor uh, declared a state of emergency back in March and has expanded executive powers. I really think that after the state of emergency, the legislature needs to be more proactive and also needs to be empowered to serve as a co-equal branch so that we have more accountability and so that the people who elected us, who we are supposed to represent, um, are, are adequately being represented and, and are being empowered. Um, so I think going forward after the pandemic, after we defeat this, we really should be reevaluating as policymakers what is what are our goals um, 
And how are we going to prevent something like this from happening in the future and be prepared? Uh, because because I think it's clear that, that this time around, we were not sufficiently prepared to, to confront this and to minimize the harm in New York. How we vote also is going to change. Is it time for more voting reforms? What would you like to see? It's interesting that previously when we have advocated for uh, no excuse absentee voting or voting by mail or electronic ballots, um, that we were given excuses, whether it be resources or fiscal impact or something, to justify failing to to implement that. Um, And now that we are facing a public health crisis that really demands it, suddenly there's the political will to make voting more accessible. Um, I think that we definitely need to do more than has been done. It's really a shame that in other states they went through with, with holding primaries the way that they normally would, knowing that um, people would be reluctant to show up and so turnout would be depressed, but also knowing that uh, those who did show up to vote were really risking their health and their lives unnecessarily. We, in order to avoid that in New York, for you know, I really applaud the the mayor and the governor for making sure that the elections that were scheduled for April have been rescheduled and um, and moved to at least June. But uh, for the June election, um, you know, realistically, I would love for us to have defeated coronavirus by June, but I think realistically we need to be enabling people to vote entirely remotely and not um, put the health and lives of poll workers um, and and Board of Elections staff at risk. Uh, so, so that's really what I want to see is um, the executive order that Governor Cuomo already passed, uh, or rather already issued, um, allows for anybody to request an absentee ballot, basically, because you can cite the COVID-19 pandemic as a reason uh, not to be able to make it to the polls, but you still have to uh, complete that form, send it in, and then have your, you know, your request approved, and then have a ballot mailed to you in order to vote absentee, um, which is can be onerous for a lot of people. Um, I think that everyone should be, anyone who's a registered voter should be able to vote absentee in, in future elections. So as I wrap up, I've just got about a minute or two left. You're you're an active member of the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, which you had mentioned. The national organization indicated it's not going to endorse Joe Biden now that Bernie Sanders dropped out. Uh, I'm not sure where you stand on this, but is there anything that Joe Biden could do or should do that might win that endorsement? It's unlikely that Joe Biden will receive DSA's endorsement, but uh, aside from the organization already saying that they don't intend to have a have membership vote on his endorsement, uh, the DSA almost exclusively endorses people who proudly identify as democratic socialists. Um, there have been very few exceptions to that based on what you know local chapters decide. But when it comes to endorsing um, a presidential candidate, 
and the way that DSA conducts an endorsement process, which is truly democratic, um, it's it's unlikely that that they would be willing to put their name and support behind someone who isn't willing to identify as a democratic socialist, but but moreover support the policies that um, have been top priorities for DSA members. So that means Medicare for all, which. Uh, you know, Vice President Biden has been sort of lukewarm on. Um, it means uh, addressing, comprehensively addressing student loan debt, forgiving student loan debt, um, among among other things that um, that as a as a candidate um, and, and hopeful Democratic nominee, um, Biden has has been reluctant or completely resistant to. Um, and so I, I know that I will be voting for whoever the Democratic nominee is for president, and I think a lot of DSA members will too. But uh, it's it's unlikely that unless unless Biden decides to court Democratic socialists, um, it's it's unlikely that that they'll be putting resources behind him and and uh, officially endorsing. And finally, I ask every guest this. I keep talking about numbers, where we stand with the number of positive cases as well as people who've passed away. But these are all individual stories of loss and of love and of pain. How have you been personally affected by this pandemic? I feel very fortunate that I haven't been really in, in a serious way personally affected by this pandemic. I feel fortunate to still have a job and a paycheck and a, a place to live that none of my, you know, most, most of my family lives in Colombia. Um, my, my mother and her parents who are thankfully still living and healthy live in South Florida. And so they've been minimally impacted. They actually shared with me yesterday that they intend to share their uh, if, if they receive a stimulus check from the government that they intend to donate it, um, which is just to say that's exactly how unaffected my immediate family is um, by the, by the crisis. Um, but I'm, I, you know, the ways in which I'm personally affected is solely through the impact on my constituents because my district has really been disproportionately impacted. Uh, Brooklyn, of course, has a very high number of cases and deaths. Um, and the, the district I represent is overwhelmingly working class and communities of color. Today, I spent a couple hours uh, serving food to essential workers at Woodhull Hospital, which is our um, public safety net hospital in the district. So that, that's really the, the way that I've experienced the impact is mostly vicariously through my neighbors and my community. And how can people learn more about you and your work? I might uh, have a campaign website, which is simply selfasarforsenate.com, um, and they can also go to nysenate.gov, uh, and and I am under the list of senators as Celia Salazar, um, and uh, they also can find me on social media. My my personal Twitter is J-U-L-I-A-C-A-R-M-E-L, uh, Julia Carmel with two underscores. Senator Salazar, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Stay, stay safe. 
You've been listening to WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You were just listening to my conversation with New York State Senator Julia Salazar. I thank you for tuning in to City Watch. I'm finding that now as I remain indoors, I'm listening to a lot more radio and, of course, to BAI. I hope you are, too. We hope to bring you information, but also solace and insight and perspective that you won't find anywhere else. Remember, we're commercial-free and non-corporate. So if WBAI means something to you, please join me in supporting us. We're like every other nonprofit that's now facing unprecedented challenges. Your support by becoming a BAI buddy is going to help sustain us. I'm a buddy. I give a contribution every month on my credit card. It doesn't have to be much, but... Every little bit is going to help us. We want to make it easy for you to support us. You can become a BAI buddy by going online to give to WBAI.org, and that's the number two, give to WBAI.org. You also could just call our center, call center just for a few moments, 516-620-3602. Again, that number is 516-620-3602. Or you can text WBAI to 41444 and follow the prompts on your smartphones. So the nonprofit Americans for the Arts reports that the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on arts and culture across our country has mounted to $4.5 billion. Its survey that went through April 7th found that more than 11,000 organizations reported they lost $4.5 billion. 94% said that they've had to cancel events because of the coronavirus outbreak and the number of lost audiences added up to more than $55 million. Cultural institutions have been particularly hit hard during this pandemic with social distancing measures forcing all theaters, museums, and performing art spaces to close, along with most businesses in our city. So I invited Taryn Sacramone, who now is vice chair of the city's cultural institutions group, on the show to discuss the city's vibrant cultural sector and how it's adapting. She's also the executive director of the Queen's Theater. Well, thank you for having me back, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Uh, The Cultural Institutions Group is a group of 34 cultural institutions of different uh, disciplines and scales across all five boroughs. We have a unique private-public partnership with New York City. Uh, We are the city's partners in making culture available to all New Yorkers. The CIG goes back 150 years. The first was the American Museum of Natural History. And most recently this year, uh, Weeksville Heritage Center uh, became the 34th member of the CIG. So to accomplish the goal of making culture available to all New Yorkers, uh, these institutions are located on city property and receive some energy and operating support as well. And in exchange, we have uh, you know, low admissions rates, have free programs, uh, education programs. We really uh, strive to make culture available to all New Yorkers. We're talking about the CIGs, but how large is the city's arts and cultural sector? Uh, it's, it's enormous. Um, Comptroller Scott Stringer released a report called The Creative Economy last October, uh, which said that the arts and culture industry employs 400,000 workers and generates $110 billion. So that's 13% of the city's total economic activity. Uh, and of course, you know, culture is what makes New York City, New York City. 
so. Uh, however you choose to measure large, it's an enormous part of New York City life. All of our cultural institutions have now closed here in the city right now, and you've organized daily calls uh, with a number of them to discuss how they're adapting. Talk a little about what they're expressing on these calls and what the current situation is. Yeah, the call started actually with the 34 members of the CIG on March 10th, and at the time the topic was, as COVID-19 was spreading, how could we keep our visitors and our patrons safe? Uh, and the situation rapidly evolved. By the end of that week, most cultural institutions were closed, Broadway was closed, uh, and we were navigating through a new world. Our institutions were not built for social distancing. We're places that bring people together. Um, so we've been speaking every day at 3 o'clock. Other organizations have been joining. There are now more than 200 cultural organizations on the phone, uh, and we are sharing information, sharing resources, talking about how we're navigating these challenges, um, collaborating together on data collection and advocacy, and also talking about what cultural organizations can be doing to support New York City through these unprecedented challenges. So uh, an example would be offering our facilities that they would be of use for the city. Or uh, earlier this week, the public theater donated 2,500 ponchos because that was something that um, the city was looking for and needed. So we also talk about online programming and how we can be serving the public uh, through these challenges. So there's a lot to talk about. And whether, you know, regardless of the size of the institution, the discipline, where it's located, the community served, we're all dealing with the exact same challenges right now. Are many of them having to lay off people? Yeah, this has been really devastating for the cultural workforce. Um, I believe that it would probably be the exception if a cultural institution um, has not. It's really been uh, incredibly, incredibly difficult. You know, our we were, the way that our businesses work is that we were, you know, we bring people in. We bring people together to our spaces. And so the challenges of this time of social distancing uh, really is a direct hit on the way that we operate. What do you think the future holds for many of these institutions? Will they be the same? Uh, I think this is a, this is what we're these are the questions that we're asking ourselves every day, Jeff. I mean, we are we are moving through an extremely challenging time. Nonprofits, uh, to begin with, um, already struggle from a lack of resources, oftentimes, and so this can be particularly challenging. Uh, we also, none of us, nobody knows how long this is going to last or what the world is going to look like on the other side of reopening, how quickly people are going to want to be going back to cultural institutions. There's a lot of uncertainty right now, but I can tell you that people are so incredibly committed and dedicated to getting cultural institutions through this time so that when that reopening moment can happen, the cultural sector is there for the city the way that it has been so many times before when the city has gone through challenging times. And I think about during times where where we need to find comfort and solace. And that's when, you know, that's when I would go into a museum. That's when I would want to absorb art and culture and find, you know, bring some modicum of peace. So at the same time, the arts and arts and culture are what bring people together at times like this. So can you just talk a little about that? 
I, I think that a lot of people feel exactly the same way that you do, Jeff. Um, I actually did a survey at the start of March, um, before this had happened, asking people what cultural institutions, for people who've grown up in New York City, what cultural institutions they visited during their time uh, as a student, kindergarten through high school. And all of them had visited multiple cultural institutions, and one described them as places of hope. You know, these were places of hope to me. And that phrase has stuck in my head through this period of time, places of hope. And I know that most cultural institutions are working to deliver their programming in other ways. You know, there's a hashtag people can follow, culture from home. People are finding ways to, you know, bring what they do into people's homes. So whether it's virtual museum tours or tours of zoos or theater performances, it, it was unbelievable how much activity happened so quickly, but it's because of this really deep, genuine commitment of the cultural sector to serve New Yorkers. I'm glad you mentioned that about how these institutions are adapting. Queen's Theater, which you oversee, is, a, is an example of how to adjust to this new normal. What's happened since you've had the opportunity, or rather, what's happened since you've had to temporarily close, and what are you doing now? Well, one of the things that we had done this year is really built up our community engagement department, and we were doing a lot of on-site community engagement work. And one of the things that we've now brought online are story circles, which we're doing every Friday, where community members can join a Zoom circle and people tell stories on various topics. So we have a schedule of those every Friday um, moving forward. We're also doing a lot of profiling of the theater artists that we've worked with. And uh, we have a few more things in the works that we're going to be announcing soon. But I will say that one of the other things that we've been doing that's less visible is reaching out directly um, to our patrons and our members and you know, senior citizens who've taken part in our performance programs within calling people, just really just calling people and seeing how they're doing and how they're coping. You know, when you, the cultural institutions that are part of the neighborhoods across the city it's not just a matter of what happens in the, you know, what's on the walls or on the stages, but also just that personal experience of feeling connected. Uh, we've been doing that that outreach to people on a personal level as well because we know that that that, that is missing. Um, but we have a lot of other ideas that we're going to be um, announcing soon. A lot of other projects in the works, and some of this programming I expect will continue even after we reopen, because we're really excited about it. That brings me to my final question. Where can our listeners go to learn more about these activities? You can follow us on our website, uh, Queen's Theater, and that's with an R-E dot org. Uh, or you can follow us on Facebook, uh, Queen's Theater, or uh, Twitter, Queen's Theater. Karen Sacramone, thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Finally today, I'd like to continue bringing you some of the voices of those who are going the extra mile to help others at this time. Here in our city, the Girl Scouts have been showing their support for our essential workers. Joining me now on WBAI is Meredith Mascara, the Chief Executive Officer of the Girl Scouts of Greater New York. Welcome back to WBAI. So I want to get to what the Girl Scouts are, are doing at this time. But first, can you just give our audience uh, a bit of a description of how many girls you serve in New York City? 
Absolutely. First of all, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, Girl Scouts of Greater New York is 107 years old, and we currently serve over 32,000 girls in the five boroughs of New York City. 70% of the girls that we serve are from low to moderate income households. So you can imagine during this time uh, of learning changes uh, and economic changes that the majority of our girls are severely affected by what's going on. And we're all responding to this crisis in different ways. What have the Girl Scouts of Greater New York been doing? You know, we teach our girls uh, to be resilient, to have grit, to be responsive, and to create the world, you know, make the world a better place. Uh, through community service, um, and we exemplify that as an organization. First of all, our, our stakeholders, our volunteers, 7,000 volunteers across the city deliver our program to girls directly. So we've been making sure that we support our volunteers in this virtual world of how they can remain connected not only to us as an organization, but to the girls that they serve. So we've switched to our programs, uh, incredible leadership programs to virtual platforms, uh, made them accessible not just for Girl Scouts and Girl Scout members, but also for families uh, of non-Girl Scouts, because we understand as an organization our priority are girls and girl leadership here, and this is a time when we can go in and help uh, all families and communities with our programs. And this is the time of year when we normally see girls selling cookies at booths outside of supermarkets and in our neighborhoods. So as we adhere to social distancing rules and many of us self-isolate, how have they adjusted? Oh, it's so hard, right? It's so hard to tell girls that they can't go and do the things that they normally do and bring cheer to people on the streets by selling Girl Scout cookies face to face. But it safety of our girls and our volunteers is number one. So we have uh, we have discontinued in-person cookie sales, of course, but over the past five years, Girl Scouts have developed a digital cookie platform. The reality is, is that when a young woman starts her, her own business in the next few years, it will be in a digital way. So Girl Scouts has always given girls a heads up in their business skills through the cookie program. And each girl has an individual, unique uh, digital cookie site where she learns how to market her cookies. She how to sell them, how to upsell customers, and to get them to donate. So our girls are uh, are putting the pedal to the metal when it comes to digital cookies, uh, making sure that customers can get the incredible product that they want, that we can also donate our cookies uh, to the right places, and that girls can reach their business goals. All of the money from a cookie sale stays local. So these girls have already made plans uh, on how they want to, as a troop, spend that money and do activities and give back to their communities. We want to make sure that they reach those goals, and they'll be able to do that through our digital cookie platform. How many boxes have been donated so far and how are they going to be distributed? This donation program is so remarkable. Uh, we have more than 60,000 packages of cookies that have been donated so far, thanks to all of the amazing customers and supporters out there in the city and beyond. And what we've done this year is we created a partnership with New York City Health and Hospitals. So this year, every single box of cookies will go into the hands of frontline staff at hospitals, at nursing homes, uh, and to the food that's being distributed to those frontline staff families. Uh, we're delivering those to the warehouse, with, to New York City Health and Hospitals, and they will be distributing it directly into the hands of doctors, nurses, uh, and frontline staff. And we've been seeing uh, pictures on our social media pages of workers uh, who are getting these. And, you know, it brings so much more than a smile because 
70% of the women in, in those positions um, in the hospitals were Girl Scouts. So they know what this box of cookie means, not only to the girls, but to the community overall. And what are you hearing now about what the troops are doing, what the girls are doing on a very grassroots level? Uh, obviously, you have a big network here in New York City, so I'm curious how they're coping and what they're doing on their own. Sure. So we see girls in action, and I think that this is just an incredible example of, of Gen Z, right? A generation that was so born into technology. This is their territory. They know what to do. And uh, we're seeing uh, on, a, on a daily basis, Girl Scout troops all over the all over the five boroughs having virtual meetings where they're doing Zoom calls, they're doing Google uh, Google meetups, um, they're connecting through all different apps and conducting their regular structured meetings. Girl Scouting is about consistency, continuity, and community, and that sense of belonging. And it's so important to these girls to continue that, where everything else in their life hasn't. Everything else has been disrupted um, and upended. But Girl Scouting has stayed consistent because of the virtual platforms we're able to switch to. So girls are still doing that. They're still selling their cookies. They're still giving back. They're making masks. Uh, they're donating. They're sending cards to hospitals to cheer up uh, frontline staff workers. Basically, they're still making the world a better place. I'm curious if you're also hearing that a number of the girls are also starting initiatives to help, you know, to volunteer, to help other essential workers in other ways. What are you hearing? Of course, yeah. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of fear and concern. A lot of our volunteers are frontline staff workers themselves. So I have heard different situations of girls who are doing call trees to different families uh, who, who may be going through this crisis in a more personal way uh, of sending cards and notes to hospitals uh, via mail to make sure that they can um, get some good cheer when they walk in the door for their shift. Uh, we have troops that are doing, uh, have set on, set up Amazon um, donation sites for blankets and bedding and pillows and stuffed animals to be sent to children's wings at hospitals. Um, you know, they're, it's amazing the problems that they, that they see that we may not as adults that they want to solve and take action on. I do want to bring up another topic. Uh, I am someone who immediately filled out the census the moment I could. I know the Girl Scouts of Greater New York also has had an initiative to get people to take part in the census that began in February. How has that changed in this current environment? Yeah, civic engagement can never stop. And I think that that's such an important message uh, for Girl Scouts. Like now more than ever, civic engagement and involvement is incredibly important. Uh, the census is where everyone, especially in situations like now where we're seeing finances being distributed, everyone needs to be counted. And girls and families understand this. So our census patch that we launched this year uh, has a virtual way for girls to collect signatures and get commitments to the census. And we've had hundreds of girls participate so far who have collected thousands of commitments for the census. We will do it, make our difference and do our part. As I wrap up, where can people learn more and also order their cookies and donate to support healthcare workers? You can go to our website, girlscoutsnyc.org, to find cookies. Go backslash find cookies. But on that website, you'll learn about all the incredible uh, programs that we're delivering. Uh, please, and I invite all of you to share that with your friends and families, even if they're not Girl Scouts. We focus on mental health during this time as well for girls and families. There's a lot of resources out there that will help in every community uh, and every fam family member as we all navigate through this territory. So it's girlscoutsnyc.org. Meredith Mascara, CEO of the Girl Scouts of Greater New York. Thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI. Thank you so much. 
stay well and safe. Conversation with Meredith Mascara, CEO of the Girl Scouts of Greater New York. As we draw to a close in just a few minutes, I want to again thank our listeners today. WBAI is staying on the air through this crisis. Even though we're all broadcasting remotely, we have our wonderful engineers like Max Schmid who are in the studio and making this all happen. So thank you, Max. Remember, most of us volunteer our time because we want to continue bringing you non-commercial, non-corporate, progressive radio. So while you're at home now, if you would just consider how nonprofits are, are hurting and what you can do to help them heal. And that includes WBAI. It would mean the world to us if you could donate, become a BAI buddy. And that's where you just set up a monthly contribution to the station. Uh, $10, $20 a month. That's all it takes. And of course, more would help. I realize times are tough right now for many of us. And so if you can be generous and show your support, I would deeply appreciate that. Just go to give to WBAI.org. That's give to the number two WBAI.org. You can also call our call center at 516-620-3602. I want to thank today's guests, New York State Senator Julia Salazar, Queens Theater's Taryn Sacramone, and Meredith Mascara of the Girl Scouts of Greater New York, and of course, our WBAI correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston, with the latest Coronavirus Diary Dispatch. And my co-host, David Brand, is going to be in this seat next Sunday with more insightful guests, and I'm going to be back uh, this Thursday at 5 o'clock with Driving Forces. At the beginning of this show today, I mentioned that bird that sings outside my window each morning. That is making a real difference in my mental health recently because every day that bird begins with a sweet melody. And that reminded me of a poem by Emily Dickinson. So as I close today, I want to leave you with her words. This is the poem, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. I wish you the best of health and that you are filled with hope and promise in the days ahead. Thank you for tuning in. Godspeed and good evening.